and welcome to the latest episode of the Scottish Education Show. My name is James McEnany. I'm a lecturer, former secondary school teacher and journalist specialising in Scottish education and also the author of the book Class Rules, The Truth About Scottish Schools. And I'm going to be your host as we explore the latest news, the biggest issues and the untold stories in Scottish education. So let's get started. So I suppose we should start off with a bit of a look at the latest development when it comes to COVID in schools, which is, of course, the decision to end the use of face masks in secondary classrooms. So obviously, this is something that's already happened in England. Primary schools haven't had mask wearing for, for pupils. It's something the Tories in particular have been very keen to, to turn into a, a campaigning point. Um, as have the usual suspects groups, groups that us for them. Um, there's a lot of talk about how, you know, young people deserve normality of being let down, et cetera, et cetera, which was, you know, wasn't really in, in good faith or anything, but it gets plenty of attention. And, and it, that's not to say this isn't a subject that should be taken seriously. Obviously, there's mixed views about masks in classrooms in general. And I don't know if anyone saw the EIS comment in response. Possibly not. It didn't look like it was designed really to get a lot of attention. But it was pretty weak, realistically, and it gave the, I don't know, I think the pretty strong impression that they are not really all that fussed about this. There are, however, there's a couple of points worth at least pausing to consider here. Firstly, pupils will still have to wear masks in you know, what are called communal areas. So, for example, in, uh, in corridors in the schools, which which seems pretty stupid on the face of it. Like, young people are in classrooms for, what, anything between, what, 45 minutes in some instances and maybe a couple of hours. And others, you know, you hear horror stories about, you know, triple periods these days. Um, and they're in those rooms and they're in close proximity to others and they're talking and they're breathing and they're maybe moving around the room. In contrast, corridors are places where, you know, you're passing by people in a couple of seconds. And they're also, as anyone who's even vaguely aware of the general existence of secondary schools will know, far less controls environments because, you know, people are moving around, going between classes, etc. So actually enforcing mask wearing in those areas, but not in classrooms, looks on the face of it like something that is potentially really, really difficult to manage. There's also this kind of thing about saying if some people want to keep using them, then that's okay, that will be allowed, which is awful good of them, you know. But we've spent a long time being told the issue with masks isn't necessarily about putting them on and that's stopping you breathing in the virus, that it's also about stopping you from breathing it out, particularly if you don't know that you have it. And maybe this would be different if everybody was being kitted out with, you know, N95 or better masks, actual respirator masks. But that's not the case. So it looks quite confusing. And a, and a lot of people, I, I mean, a lot of teachers um, that responded to me on Twitter that I spoke to after it either said, you know, this is incredibly confusing or were just quite scathing about, about the whole thing. It kind of feels like the people responsible behind this, somewhere behind the scenes, there are people there who do actually want high school pupils to keep wearing masks. Because why else are you telling them to keep them on in the communal areas of schools? But for some reason, they feel that the scales have tipped 
in terms of the impact that that has in classrooms and on the effect of learning. But I'm not really sure what could have sparked that since nothing else has changed other than maybe the increasing anxiety over the fact that exams are now looming on the horizon and this fear that young people, you know, you wonder, is it that? Are the people in charge actually, can they see what we can all see, that young people are being hugely disadvantaged right now and aren't willing or able to, to go back on those those kind of policies, like, like, you know, having the exam diet. So are looking for some kind of way, any kind of way, you know, to try and address, I suppose, the problems that, that they've created. Well, if so, they really haven't thought it through. <laughs> because exams being on the horizon is surely one reason not to do this right now. It's surely a reason to wait, you know, maybe at least till the Easter holiday. If that's the focus, if, that, if this issue is about the impact of masks on learning and then how that, and then the outcome of that, i.e. the exams at the end. Because removing masks in the classroom will, clearly, lead to more cases in schools amongst both pupils and teachers that have all I mean even now like don't talk about it but there's thousands of teachers and thousands of kids not in school just now because they're isolating so that's going to create more disruption for individuals it'll create more disruption for classes and it'll create more disruption for schools and we already know that there's been massive disruption and although the SQA are promising you know this this exam material stuff I don't know many if any people who have any faith in that organization as a general rule and certainly any faith in it to produce resources that are going to make a real material difference here or that are going to be fair. That's probably another issue. There doesn't seem to be any serious reckoning with the interaction though between these two policies. The removal of masks on the one hand and the absolute obsession with business as normal, status quo via a national exam diet. Both policies suit politicians and people invested in the status quo in and of themselves. But as I say, the, the interaction between them is this area that people just look to be ignoring. And it looks once again, I think, that young people and their teachers are simply the ones who are being caught in the middle of this, while other people think of either think of themselves or think of this system as a whole and the best way that they can protect that. Something else you may have seen this week, and this is something um, this is something very, very, very serious, and something that although it's going to be, it would it would be very difficult for us to confront properly. It's something we're confronting it properly is long overdue. So what you may have seen this week was a story about a young woman at Creef High School. And her name's Anna DeGaris, and she published an open letter in which she complained about, and I'm quoting, sexual harassment, uh, sorry, sexual assault, regular sexual harassment, and frequent racist abuse. She also says that, and again quoting, racism, sexism, sexual assault and harassment, homophobia and transphobia are all rife, end quote. And the people affected by this, again quoting once more, both feel let down and feel like there is also no point in speaking so the story then developed further. Anna and her mum had a meeting with a head teacher that uh, kind of um, informed me afterwards 
um, the words that were used were, went as badly as it possibly could have. So credit to Anna, though, who really is an incredibly impressive young woman, although one who shouldn't be in this situation. But she kept going. She's, she's, you know, spoke for herself, going on camera, um, which must have been incredibly daunting. And that helped to ensure that this story has now been covered across a very wide range of outlets, which when I was first made aware of it, just before it was being published, I wasn't sure that it, it would be. And I'm really glad to see um, that I was wrong on that and that it has been picked up really quite broadly. So the Times um, even spoke to former pupils whose testimony was pretty harrowing. The local council promised an investigation. It's drawn a response from the education secretary. So things are now happening that were not happening before, but only it seems because one very, very brave young woman had the courage to go public with her experiences. Now, obviously, investigation will have to run its course. But is anybody confident this situation would be unique to one place? Because I think we'd probably be kidding ourselves on in that one. Young women in schools facing sexual harassment, even sexual assault, and it not really been taken seriously? Well, that would leave schools reflecting what happens in society. So it seems pretty bloody likely, actually. Are there any women listening to this, for example, who've never been subject to sexual harassment or assault? Almost certainly not. And the notion this would only begin once young women leave school because schools are these idyllic and protected places where everything's wonderful. I mean, that's just clearly absurd. Homophobia and transphobia and racism in school? Well, anyone shocked by that hasn't been paying attention over the last few years. And of course, especially when it comes to the homophobia and the transphobia, this is something that we are seeing increasing in broader society. We've got the stats for that. We know that homophobic and transphobic attacks have been increasing. We know that we see this in the media and from politicians in relation to things like, and if there are any politicians listening to this who engage with who have engaged with this kind of stuff, then yes, I am talking to you, and yes, you should be ashamed of yourself. We're talking about things like the coordinated attacks on Stonewall, the biggest LGBT rights organization in Europe, I believe. The attempts to undermine LGBT inclusive education. So, for example, go and have a look if you want at the there was a motion that was presented to Western Bartonshire Council by an Alba councillor who, mercifully, I believe, isn't standing again, um, and it was and it was defeated. But a very, very clear attack on the drive towards LGBT inclusive education, and frankly, just you know, rehashing all the old, uh, all the old lines and ideas of of you know Section Twenty Eight. It was very, very much that kind of rhetoric. You've also got the absolutely constant stream of trans panic articles in the newspapers. I mean, the Times today, I think there's literally a thing in the Times talking, you know, the Vikings may have been trans. Like, it's it's so unbelievably intense and obsessive. And again, the idea that that stuff doesn't spill into schools is just ridiculous. But the thing that worries me, that really that really bothers me about this, is that it shouldn't take the courage of desperate teenagers to make us confront it. And yes, it is perfectly possible that there are particular problems at that particular school that needs to be addressed in specific ways, but it isn't remotely possible that these sorts of issues only affect pupils at that school. So one of the things that I often argue really damages Scotland is this, is the fact that I think you know, we're quite prone to exceptionalism, this idea that we are some sort of beacon of progress and it's often used to downplay 
you know, real fundamental issues. You know, you hear people talk about, you know, this just nonsense ideas, things, you know, that, that racism doesn't really exist in Scotland or things like that, you know. So we, we use the, this idea of ourselves to, to downplay huge issues in our society, racism, attitudes to women, homophobia, transphobia. Now, in, in this particular story as well, there are also kind of issues of, of power dynamics going on and people protecting their own reputations, shutting down public critique. And I don't think I'm saying anything particularly groundbreaking when I say that the education system in Scotland, and especially those at the higher points of it, maybe this is, maybe this is something that just comes with promotion, but it's, it is prone to these sort of defensive and dismissive responses. And in some ways, I suppose, maybe that's even understandable because the sort of accusations in that open letter would reflect profound failures on the parts of adults responsible for developing and protecting a safe environment. It's a, it's a pretty direct accusation that people haven't done their jobs. And who wants to hear that, you know? But that's not really good enough, is it? That sort of defensiveness. None of us want to hear that. None of us want to hear that schools of that various aspects of schools may be failing some, maybe large numbers, maybe all young young people, but is ignoring it the answer? Because I think, I'm starting to think maybe what we really need is actually this, is to be forced to listen to the testimonies, not just of one young woman at one school, but of young people from across the country facing these sorts of issues in schools. And I think we need to be made to listen to it in a very unfiltered kind of way. There's lots of, there's always all this talk about engaging young people. So we'll run focus groups with them. We'll pretend, like last year, you know, we'll pretend we're listening to them when it comes to setting up the, the alternative exam system. You know, there's lots and lots of ways in which organisations in the government like to be seen, to be engaging with young people, but it's always very much in a sort of managed structure. It's about kind of controlling what comes from that. And actually, I think that's something that we just need to have the courage to abandon sometimes. And I think, or I wonder, what would happen? What kind of issues would come up? What kind of shortcomings would we have to confront if we simply handed young people a platform and asked them to talk not about the curriculum and not about the latest media-friendly initiative from a school or a council or any of that kind of thing? What if we give them a microphone and ask them how safe they feel at school. What would that bring up? What would we have to talk about then? Is it a conversation we're even ready to have? To be honest, I mean, this being Scotland, <laughs> um, like so many other conversations that are needed, probably not. There's lots of conversations that Scotland needs to have and isn't really ready for. Some of them around education and lots of others. But this is one of these areas where, you know what, I don't think it matters if we're ready or not. I don't think it's good enough to to back off this kind of thing. I don't think it's acceptable for us to not be willing to at least try to listen and at least try to confront this. Because I think, I worry that if you did this in every single school in the country and you allowed young people to talk about their experiences of sexual harassment and sexual assault and racism and transphobia and homophobia and 
ask them what happens if you try to report these things and ask them what how, how schools respond. I think if we were really forced to look in that mirror, there's a very high chance that we're going to end up really quite um, disturbed by the face that we find looking back at us. But that's also exactly why we should go ahead and do it. So I thank you, I suppose, to, to Anna de Garris, but also an apology, because it's very obvious that she should never have had to have taken on a fight like this and put her in this kind of position. And I think it's also very obvious that both as, as an education system and as a society, we have a very, very, very long way to go. I'm not even sure we've really started addressing these things in a very, very long way to go before we can even start to consider that sort of work, even vaguely in the ballpark of being successful or being complete. Now, finally, as a last thing, I know this bit's meant to be about reflecting on the news over the last week in the Scottish system and stuff like that, but I saw this thing and I just need to talk about it. So we're going to leave Scotland briefly. We'll come back, but we're going to leave Scotland behind to talk about another bit of edgy news and it's from Uganda. Now, I'm going to put a link to the article I'm going to be talking about here in the podcast description so you can go and you can find it for yourself. And I really, really would recommend it. Um, links in there that you could use can get the data, which I'm, I'm on as well. It comes from the, the Centre for Global Development. And what it's looking at is the impact of what it calls Uganda's record-breaking two-year school closure, which some of you might have seen um, reported on recently when they finally reopened. So this is all related to the idea of school closures and, and this phrase, I hate it, but learning loss is a terrible, terrible phrase, a terrible, simplistic, reductive, as we will see actually from this story. So, but these are issues that are creating anxiety, you know, the world over. And it's driving lots of policies that to my mind look very misguided. They look like people reacting to things they don't fully understand. Um, or looking for easy solutions to complicated problems, which only ever creates more complicated problems. So one example, like the National Tutoring Programme in England, which has completely predictably descended into absolute chaos after burning a huge chunk of public money, which was always a bad idea, which was very, very badly managed, and which was, I think, predicated on a quite poisonous assumption, which is the one that the, the poorest, those with least should be expected to work the hardest to rebuild the very system that oppressed them. The, the, the assumption behind all this, though, understandably, is that school closures cause, you know, this you know, phrase, devastating learning loss. And, you know, that's a perfectly reasonable position to think that closing schools affects learning. As I say, the phrase learning loss is hugely simplistic and reductive and doesn't really help. But on the face of it, you know, if kids going to school is a good thing and they learn stuff, then if they're not at school, they're not going to learn stuff and that is a bad thing. That is relatively black and white, you would think. Um, but this is interesting. Uganda's interesting and useful, not just because of the length of the school closures, but also the sort of data that's available. Now, anybody who knows me and um, will know that I'm constantly complaining about the god-awful state of data in Scottish education, not least because the Scottish government years ago, for entirely political reasons, scrapped our survey-based literacy and numeracy data 
because they didn't like the numbers that was given them and introduced a new system they were trying to rig to give them the numbers that they, they wanted. Something very interesting about the, the Uganda data, it is literacy and numeracy and it is survey-based. It's done at a household rather than a school level, which is now something that, that the implications of which absolutely fascinate me. And maybe it wouldn't matter so much in Scotland because of maybe enrolment levels and things like that, but it's still something I'm, I'm quite interested to find out more about. But let's look at the data, or let's a little bit, because as I say, it's far too complicated. There's too much of it to go, to go into just now um, on this particular show. So I, I really encourage people to go and read it for themselves. But what happened, you know, for example, to reading levels when Ugandan schools were, were closed for so long? Um, and this is looking at data between 2018, pre-pandemic, and then 2021. And the beauty of a household survey, obviously, even if schools are closing, you can continue it and you can find out things that maybe nobody else is going to find out. So what happens at reading levels? Well, I quote, the proportion of children fully competent in English reading for the whole set of grades P3 to P7 has risen from 32.5% in 2018 to 39.5% in 2021. And yes, you did hear that correctly. Risen. Risen from 32.5% to 39.5%, seven percentage point increase over the course of the pandemic with schools closed. Now, the article goes into lots of detail about different features of the data. Really, again, if you're somebody like me, very interesting, but it isn't like it's all some sort of counterintuitive miracle here, right? There, there are some of the things you would expect are very definitely there. It does look as though the weakest, if you want to call them that, you know, again, not, not a word I like very much, but, you know, air quotes, the weakest pupils and those from the poorest backgrounds are the ones being negatively affected. So again, to quote the article, the kids who are furthest behind appear to be further behind and poorer kids are taking the biggest hit. But even that doesn't appear to be playing out entirely as you would expect, particularly when you look at more of the detail in the data that can draw distinctions between the different levels of literacy, you know, um, the level at which is identifying letters and then at which it's reading and you don't see the same kind of impact at the higher level stuff as the lower level stuff. But who knows, maybe maybe the impact of the lower level stuff now will affect the higher level stuff later on. It's complicated, but that's kind of what I want to get at here. I'm not going to sit here and say it proves the pandemic isn't a problem for education because that's absolute nonsense. And I'm clearly not going to sit here and say that, you know, somehow schools just do not matter. But, and it's a big but, a great deal of the response to the impact of the pandemic on education has been extremely simplistic, extremely reductive, and based on assumptions being made by people who don't necessarily actually know what they're talking about or know enough to really be making those those um, those sorts of interventions. Particularly politicians, but not only politicians. A lot of it, though, is driven, a lot of the response is driven by this simplistic, um, political and kind of populist response not genuinely carefully considered approaches, not real, you know, thoughtful interaction with the genuine impact. For reasons, you know, if you start getting into actually thinking through all this kind of stuff and looking at it seriously, then we're going to end up back at that point of people calling for like actual radical change to the system. And it's very, very clear that the Scottish government, most of the opposition as well, do not want that. So that's kind of part of the reason I, I suspect. But what this data from Uganda does, and I'm going to spend more time looking at it, but what it does, especially in comparison, I think, to Scotland, but it, it's immensely valuable because it, it's reminding us that the situation that we are looking at here is far, far, far more complicated than many people, lots of them with their own interests to pursue, 
would have you believe. It turns out that actually the appearance of a new virus which sparks a, a global pandemic that shuts down societies but affects all societies in different ways due to the political choices that are made by leaders and other issues, climates and geographies and all sorts of you know age populations and distributions, all this kind of stuff. It turns out that's actually very complicated. And it turns out that its impact on arguably one of the most complicated moving parts of any society, its education system, is also very, very complicated. And if nothing else, I think this sort of data, this kind of story, maybe this realisation might just be helpful to just take away a little bit of the, the breathless pursuit of the next thing to be seen to be doing stuff and might encourage a little bit more thought, a little bit more care, a little bit more attention to the detail and a little bit more thought about the extent to which what we have seen in the last couple of years doesn't actually call for some really simplistic, you know, get them caught up and call it a day um, policy making, but actually really genuinely does call for really fundamental reassessments of not just the things that we do, but the beliefs that we hold that inform all of that. So moving on, my guest this week is Strathclyde University lecturer Lee Coots. He's involved in working with school placements, PhD research, usual uni things. Um, but the thing that really interested me is something that's completely new. It's a course for people looking to become we make you know, qualified uh, college lecturers. So the new program on offer is based on, I think, a very interesting idea and one which Lee refers to, and some of you may have seen him talking about this you know, on Twitter or other places, as authentic assessment. Now, given the obsession right now with getting, you know, quote, back to normal, normal exam, diet, grade distributions, all that kind of thing, and the apparently, you know, in some areas, certainly dominant belief that only exams can provide a, a reliable assessment outcome, that that's the only way we could possibly run a system. I think the work that he's doing is really, really relevant right now. I think it could open up all sorts of interesting discussions about what assessment is for, about how we approach the systems that run it. He talks um, a lot about trying to ensure that assessment processes are social, are not just you know giving you data, but are also socially just. And this is all stuff that is intensely relevant to the broader education system right now. But it's a discussion that, as we've mentioned before, there are lots of people who would like to shut down. So on that basis, as I say, I think it's really, really important stuff, really interesting. And I was really, really pleased that he you know, found a little bit of time and agreed to join me to talk about it. Hi, Lee. Uh, how are you doing? And thanks for joining us. Hi, James. I'm good. Thanks. Yeah, very, very well. Thanks for, for coming on today. Obviously, you're um, you're you're delivering a course that's maybe something a little bit different from what people uh, know about, and I'm quite looking forward to getting into that and how you're delivering it. But um, yeah. as I'm you know, given that, you know, maybe not everybody knows who you are or your background or anything, could you tell us a wee bit about that? You know, who are you, and particularly, you know, your current role and how you how you found your way into that? Cause it's quite an interesting story, I think. 
Of course, yeah, no problem at all. So my name is uh, Lee Coots. I currently work at Strathclyde Uni. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about my role there just shortly. But I've taken quite a, I guess, quite an unusual route to, to where I currently am. I um, I left school at the end of S4 at 15, not particularly liking school, had no hires, uh, did, did my standard grades at the end of S4. And, and I was one of the, the pupils uh, who got the results in 2000, which was the big exam fiasco year. And I can remember getting my results thinking, oh, there's a mistake because um, my results were higher than, than I anticipated. Um, so I remember thinking at the time, oh, there's, there's a mistake made, I'll, you know, I'll get a new set of results. But, but anyway, so I decided to leave school at the end of S4 and went to college. So at that time, it was Angus College up in, up in Angus, and it was the, the Montrose Learning Centre I, I went to, which was essentially a converted house. And it's still, it's still there now, it still, it still exists. It's, it's a converted house. And it has, I think, something like three classrooms. You know, it was a, one of these outreach type centres. So I stayed there for a couple of years and did a, an NC and an HNC programme in uh, business. And I can remember early on in my college career, they, one of the tutors asking me, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? You know, that was the type of conversation. And I can remember thinking, I'd actually quite like to teach. And I have thought she would laugh at me for, for saying that, but she didn't. Um, she took me quite seriously and, you know, and listened and, and things like that. And, uh, and she was really, really supportive. And I, she, she still works at Dundee Mangus College, actually, this, this lady that I'm thinking of. Um, and she was great. She really encouraged me. She, you know, helped me do what I needed to do. So after my HNC, I went to Stirling to do the undergraduate degree that they have in secondary teaching. So I was there for four years, did the, the business and uh, education degree that they have there before joining Grangemouth High as a probationer. So I stayed at Grangemouth for a few years and then I saw a job, a lecturing job at a college in Glasgow uh, crop up. And it really made me stop and think because I had such an excellent experience at college when I saw there was an opportunity for me to be that lecturer. It was something that really I hadn't thought about, but it was something that really, really made me stop and think. So I decided to apply and I got it. So I moved from Grangemouth High to, to North Glasgow College at that time. And that latterly became Glasgow Kelvin. And I stayed there for 10 years. During that time, I completed a master's part-time at Strathclyde. I completed my doctorate at Strathclyde part-time. And then just, I think by coincidence, lucky, right place, right time, a job came up. So I applied for the job at Strathclyde, which was to work predominantly with business education student teachers at that point. I applied and, and got it uh, and have been at Strathclyde now for about two and a half years. I've got a really diverse role, I think, at Strathclyde, and that's, that's one of the things I really like about it. A lot of my time is spent working with the business education student teachers. Um, I also look after the school placement module for our secondary education students. There's like 700 of them uh, do that. So that takes up a bit of time. Um, I have the sort of title of Associate Director for Postgraduate Research. So I look after and support a lot of our PhD, doctoral students, masters by research student. And on top of that, I'm developing this new teaching qualification for college lecturers. So that's really, been been a big focus and big highlight of my my job for the last probably for the last nine months or so. So that's really what I'm I'm focusing on at the moment. You know, a big priority, a big project, um, and has really been a lot a big catalyst for a lot of the work that I'm doing at the moment around authentic assessment and, and transformative teaching and learning.
So I think you said there, this project that you're doing just now is for um, when it's around college lectures. Now, this is obviously a college lecture is, is what I do now, and it's where you kind of came from as well. But I suspect that most people listening to this um, maybe don't um, have much of an understanding, because it's not really broadly understood, yeah. I think, about how yeah. Yeah. college lecturers become qualified, what that qualification involves. So could yes. you tell yeah. us a bit now about, like, you know, it's called the TQFE, the Teaching Qualification and Further Education, but can you explain that to listeners a little yes. bit? So to, to get a job in a college, uh, to get a teaching job in a college, you don't have to be qualified initially. Some people are, some people have, you know, a, a primary or secondary teaching qualification like I had, um, but some people will come directly from industry, having never taught before and have no teaching qualification. And in a number of sectors, that's the, the natural way into a lecturing post. You know, they've worked in the industry for a number of years, and then I want to, to you know, provide that knowledge to others. So you can get a job as a college lecturer without a teaching qualification, and that's, that's the norm for a number of, of people. But there's now an agreement that if you don't have a teaching qualification, that you obtain one within two years of starting employment. So if you, you get a lecturing job in a college and you don't have a teaching qualification, the most common thing that people have to do is something called the TQFE or teaching qualification in further education. Now, I don't particularly like the title TQFE because I don't think further education really captures the range of what college lecturers do. You know, it's, it's quite a traditional term, you know, and so on. College lecturers do far more than just further education. So I, I don't like that term. But anyway, that, that's... Especially, actually, it occurs to me, especially in Scotland, where like some, is it a quarter of higher education happens in college as well. So yeah. it's a strange title. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's nearly about a third now. So the SFC published some statistics, I think it was earlier this week or last week, and it's now about a third of what colleges do is actually higher education. So HNCs, HNCs degrees. But of course, there's been a huge growth in school college partnerships and, and you know those types of programs. So I think the, the traditional further education term, in my view, is, is almost slightly redundant now. But, but anyway, TQFE is what it's called. And um, I noticed uh, probably about a year or so ago that there was a need for something different. They, there's a number of TQFE providers out there um, and, and are very successful, obviously, you know, and, and that's great. But I decided that I thought we could do maybe something different. Now, Strathclyde used to offer the TQFE around about 20 years ago, but have, hasn't done so for a long time. So I thought, great, this is an opportunity for me to, to do something different, but also to bring the TQFE back to back to the uni. So I'm really lucky that I work in a, in a school within Strathclyde School of Education that, that's very, very supportive. You know, we'll, we'll listen to ideas and, and, you know, my boss basically said, yeah, great, let's go for this. So I've been working with some of my colleagues over the last nine months or so, uh, working with the sector to develop the Strathclyde version of the TQFE. Although we're not calling it TQFE, for the reasons that I really gave earlier, you know, for me it's a bit of an old term now, but it does confer that teaching qualification for, for college lecturers, which is which is the main thing. And what is it you're calling your course then? So a bit of a, a mouthful, but we're calling it leading learning and transformative practice in colleges. Now there's a couple of reasons for that. One of the, the reasons that we're calling it leading learning and transformative practice is because the course is based on transformative learning and teaching principles. And in a nutshell, that is about challenging the norm. 
it's about taking a step back and challenging assumptions, you know, assumptions we make about uh, students and learners, ourselves, the colleges and communities that we work in, and really thinking about what impact do those assumptions, positively and negatively, have on the student experience. And some of those conversations can be uncomfortable because some of, some of the, the issues or problems that we might face because we are causing them ourselves about the assumptions that we are bringing to the classroom or the learning environment and this this program is a space for um assumptions and things to be challenged and really the opportunity to if, if appropriate to do things differently with the ultimate goal of, of providing the best student experience that we, we possibly can um, and the course is, is designed as i say with that transformative lens uh, in mind but it's also in keeping with the socially progressive agenda we have at Strathclyde about making a, making a positive difference and, and doing the right thing. So it ties nicely into our strategic aims and vision as well. And one of the things that's really interesting about your course um, is the way you're planning to assess on it. Because yeah. for people who, lots of people who are listening to this will be... Um, he says, assuming there are lots of people listening, but all of, the, yeah. all of the ones who do oh. listen, um, a decent proportion are going to be teachers who've gone through the PGDE, and yes. that yeah. basically yeah. you do your school placements, but you do that as a yeah. as a student teacher, so it's not the same relationship. And then there's essays, and there's pro I mean, I really liked my PGDE. I did mine at UWS, and I can't speak highly enough of the experience. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. certainly, you know essays and projects and I remember you know all that kind of stuff yeah, yeah. and that's what everyone's going to have that in their heads but yes. you're you're sitting there with a very different model aren't you yes yes so, there are no essays there are no essays so when I was when I was thinking about this course you know lying awake in the middle of the night thinking about it one, one of the things that I was really keen to do was to link assessment to practice so really to make the assessment process and experience as authentic as possible and one of the reasons I, I did that is because yes essays have their place in certain courses and so on but we're talking about a group of professionals who a large number of them will be very experienced educators large numbers of them will have worked in the industry for a number of years and so on and essays in my view or you know for example was probably not the best way to assess the competence and the experience and the learning that they have done you know some people are naturally very good at essays other people are not but just because you can write an essay does that mean you're you're good in the classroom potentially not i would suggest so for me i was really keen that we we had assessment methods that linked as closely to practice and have as authentic as possible so that that link between what we're doing at uni and practice is as close as possible it's not seen as two separate things so that's really been the sort of underlying uh, principle of, of how I've approached the assessment in this in this program. And what does that look like then? So that the big, you know, the usual question: What does that look like in the classroom? What it, you know, you're Absolutely. talking about? We're not going to use essays. We've got authentic assessments. It's more tied into the actual practice. All of which yeah. sounds excellent. But what is it? So, like, if I'm a student on your course, what will that look like for me? Absolutely. So for the, there's, there's three modules in the programme. For the first module, we are taking a patchwork assessment approach. And what that means is there's small patches or small assessments that students do as they go along that's linked to what they're doing in college. 
And at the end of the semester, or at the end of the module, they submit those for assessment. So for example, one of the patches is to think about a group of students that the lecturer currently has, think about what they're doing with them in the classroom, think about why they're doing that, thinking about how it promotes um, you know, equity, social justice, sustainability, all the all sort of the key themes that we're thinking about, really getting the lecturer to question you know, in what way does it promote that and what way does it not? And then the student will present that. Uh, so these, these small patches that students do as they go along are formatively assessed, they'll get some feedback from their tutor, they'll get feedback from peers, so that when they come to submit the, the final patch at the end, um, there's no surprises, you know, the, the tutor knows what the student's going to hand in, the students had the opportunity to take on board feedback, you know, really engage in the assessment process, rather than hand something in and hope for the best. And, you know, some, some assessment processes are a bit like that, where you hand in an essay, you don't really know how well it's going to do, you keep your fingers crossed and hope you get a good mark. This, the, the patchwork approach for that particular module should take that away. The other reason that we've adopted a patchwork approach is because we can't assume that lecturers actually know how to do essays. Some of them will have done a degree, for example, and, and will have written essays, but a lot, of, a lot of college lecturers, depending on their vocational background, may have never written an essay before. Um, so therefore, we couldn't make the assumption that students would actually know how to write an essay. So back to the point I made earlier about, is it the most appropriate way to assess? Well, for this group, probably not. Um, because as I say, being able to write an essay doesn't mean necessarily to say that you're good in the classroom or, or otherwise. So, that, so hopefully this patchwork approach will, will help alleviate that. The second module is for students to identify an aspect of practice that they want to disrupt. Now, I use the word disrupt this, uh, deliberately because it's an aspect of practice they want to change, okay? And that could be something really small, like they want to change their approach to um, how it's delivered or, or a particular tool or resource that they use in the classroom. You know, yes, you know, they want to change the seat arrangements. It could be something quite small or it could be something quite big, like we're going to deliver it completely online rather than face-to-face -face, or we're going, to, you know, we're going to take a completely different approach to this uh, unit than we have before. So students will do this disruptive task, if you like, and then we'll share the results of that with their peers and with their tutors. And the assessment is that conversation, that dissemination of what they've done. So they'll come along, they'll talk to us about what they did, why they did it, how it went, what their students thought, and what their takeaway messages were. So they'll come and discuss that with us and with their peers, uh, and that will be their assessment. The third module, which is, is really, I think, quite exciting, um, is a module where students will be assessed by Fiverr. Now, as soon as people hear the word Fiverr, they automatically think of, of PhD exams, like grilling, you know, they're going to get, you know, a hard time by all these, you know, university professors and so on. It's not like that. We've called it a Fiverr because that's its sort of, I suppose, official name, technical term, but it's a professional discussion. And what we're doing is we're saying to students, these are the professional standards for college lecturers you've got to meet. No, there's no secrets about what they are. We want you to tell us and show us how you have met them. So rather than me saying to the student, right, I need you to do X, Y, and Z to prove to me that you can you can do this, which is a bit like what we do in teacher education. You know, it's the tutor, the uni set tasks for the student to prove they can do it. 
what I'm saying to the student is, here's what you need to be able to do to get this award. You prove to me that you've done it through whatever, through whatever vehicle you want. So you gather the evidence, you know, you, it's your learning, it's your professional development. I'm here to support you and to coach you and, and give you advice and steer you in the right direction. But ultimately, you gather the, the genuine, authentic evidence that you've got from working students or from being in the classroom. Come to Viva, which is a professional discussion with me and with, with a member of college staff, and tell us how you think you should be awarded or why you think you should be awarded the qualification. So that's a very, very different approach. It's, it's very different, yeah. That's, that's very that's, different. Yeah. Um, but it's based on empowering the student. It's based, and it really is based on authenticity. So the lecturer, the lecturers are involved in all sorts of teaching and learning, all sorts of projects and, and groups and things like that at college. I don't see the need to set additional tasks if they can prove that they meet the standard in a genuine and authentic way. And that's what this approach does. You've still got to meet the standards, and if they don't, they won't pass, but they're in charge of how they argue and, and uh, support their claim that they've met the standard. Of course, with our support and help, you know, we're not just leaving them to get on with it, um, and that's what they'll be assessed on. So, so a very different approach. So essentially, it sounds what you're kind of ultimately saying to them is like, you're all, all of you, whoever they happen to be, and you're going to have people there who are from all different backgrounds, some of whom have been teaching, as you say, for 20 years, but don't have the qualifications, some of whom might be brand new. All different yes. backgrounds, all different professional backgrounds, and but the situation is they've all got the same standards to meet. So it, it sounds to me like what you're, it's like you're kind of standing there saying, right, everybody, that thing over there, that's the target you've got to hit. But how yes. you hit it and what you use to hit it this is your business yes. and you're and, and in that kind of situation you know somebody who's spent 20 years teaching social sciences without happening to have a tqfe is maybe going to use a different projectile and a different technique as opposed to Absolutely. somebody who has spent the last 20 years as a mechanic but is going Absolutely. in to teach a really practical course yes and, and there's a couple of reasons for that and, and you've, you've hinted at one of them there the key thing is the focus the outcome so the outcome is you need to show how you demonstrate the standard because that's what will determine whether you get this teaching qualification or not. But if we set a number of tasks for the student to do, we're assuming that everybody is approaching those tasks in the same way and that everybody um, has the same starting point. So if I give somebody an essay, they've got to reach a certain standard with that essay, but I'm also assuming they know how to write it. I'm also assuming they know how to read and how to, to put it together, how to reference. Whereas what we're saying is, it doesn't matter um, what your strengths and weaknesses are as such. It doesn't matter what your starting point is. Here's the goal. It's up to you to drive your way towards that goal. And how you do that is entirely up to you. You'll, you'll, you know, we'll meet with students regularly. We'll coach them and support them through it. Um, and we'll obviously help navigate their way towards that goal so that you know, any problems they face, they can talk to us and, and iron them out. But it's genuine, it's genuine, genuine personalization and it's taken into account the different starting points that lecturers come. So, so in, in my view, it, it really is that equity at heart because it's taken into account reality rather than putting up these hurdles and making certain assumptions about what people can and can't do. Yeah, that, that it, it makes a lot of sense. And is it something... 
because I'm now sitting here, obviously, you know, thinking I, I, I've spent a long time advocating for um, exam reform, for example, um, yeah. the, the way that we run the hires and the national fives and the advanced fives and all that, as well as all sorts of other kinds of assessment that we do in this country. Is this something I wonder if maybe some people might be listening to this and think that sounds great, but that's only that you know but the workload would be huge or if you tried to expand that it become too problematic or maybe it's not you know the usual kind of things that it's not rigorous enough or something like that yeah presumably yeah. you've thought about all this kind of stuff though and you're confident that it's going to meet the requirements while also not being some horrendous workload burden for example yeah now there's a couple of things to think about there that's that's really interesting you know some without naming systems in countries some exam systems in some countries are very focused on procedures and through carrying out lots and lots of procedures and, and technical exercises and calculating all sorts of statistics once you know some systems in some countries once they've done that therefore make the assumption what they've done is fair so there's a big focus on procedural aspects and checks. And so if everybody goes through the same process, if everybody is put through the same yes. routes, then therefore everyone's being treated fairly as the assumption, yeah. Yes, yes. And it's fair if only a certain number of people get an A and a certain number of people get a B and so on. And we've seen that in a country not too far away from us fairly recently, of course. Um, and we think about, well, students need to be able to do this. They've got to give so many examples of that. They need to learn particular command words for exams you know we, we see all these procedural aspects and we see we also see in our classrooms that that takes over and the the, the processes that then follow such as you know moderation standardization quality assurance that takes up a huge amount of time okay so what we are doing in this approach is we, we you know we've got quite you know, the, the goal and what we need people to be able to do is very clear, it's, it's criteria based. So here's the criteria that we need to tick off, i.e. here are the standards, um, and, and that's great. But what we're doing is we're diverting the, the, the time that I suppose we would spend on a lot of the quality assurance to learning and teaching, because we don't need to do as many checks because we're, you know, we're, we're not focusing as much on procedural aspects. Now, for lots of people that will be uncomfortable because that's a shift in how, in, in how we view fair assessment. But fair assessment does not mean the same. And that's one of the problems with exams. We want to give everybody the same, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's fair because what's permitted, you know, in certain cultures and backgrounds and contexts and so on, will be different. It also assumes that people are going into the exam with almost with a level level playing field. And we know that's not the, and it's not the case. Yeah, with the same experiences, um, which is definitely not absolutely. true. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we assume everybody who walks into an exam hall has been through the same experience, you know, and, and it's, the exam will automatically favour certain people compared to others. Whereas what we're saying is to, to students, well, you choose the way that you want to show us your learning in a way that's going to suit you the best. It's going to take into account, you know, different experiences, different challenges that people have had um, and so on. So what we are saying is to give people a fair crack at this assessment, that doesn't mean to say it's got to be the same assessment. We want people to choose. And we, you know, we know that students like personalization, they like to be able to choose things. Uh, and, and so on. So, so that's kind of the, the approach here. But it, it, you know, without a doubt, it's, it's 
it's not easy, you know, I'm maybe making it sound easy and it's not, there's, you know, there's, there's lots of things to think about and lots of things to think in advance. Um, and it is, it's, it's a mind shift towards the approach of assessment. And don't be wrong, I've had to justify it and, and sit and defend and explain the approach that I'm taking. You know, I'll need to what you know, I'll need to monitor things as it goes. We'll, we'll need to tweak things. We'll need, to, you know, we'll need to do all sorts of things as we go along. But ultimately, the goal is on the outcome of student learning, which I would say is, is the priority, rather than the procedures, which tends to dominate in a lot of systems at the moment. I would say, in which obviously you would hope the the end result of all of this is that the people who are coming out of it ultimately are able to deliver higher quality yeah. teaching, therefore higher quality learning. And so, it, so it pans out in that regard as well. And it, I, I suppose kind of what you're saying is like, in terms of how we assess a lot of the kind of the traditional way, we have this kind of target is saying, we want them to reach this particular ability. And so we're going to set these tasks and these hoops that if they do them, we're going to assume yes. that means they can do these things. And certainly in the courses just now, I'm not sure that that relationship is always as clear cut as we think, but actually yeah. it looks kind of as if you're saying, well, if what we're aiming for is that thing at the end, forget yeah. about us setting these predetermined hoops. Absolutely. What we're going to say to the students yeah. is, you need to get yourself there. And it's one of the, like, because people sometimes look at this stuff and think it's like, it's about dumbing down, but this actually sounds to me like it puts more onus on the learners to be really engaged Absolutely. with and reflecting on their learning and actually it, this is this sounds like it's one of these things where this is probably harder but better yeah, i think absolutely i i think that's a really, really fair point i think it's um it's challenging in different ways because the student has to take ownership of it and if they don't they're not going to pass you know they're in control it's not just about getting through hoops you can't just um, rattle off a couple of essays um, right. the night before and then go oh, there we go we're fine exactly exactly but the other thing it takes away away is you know in certain institutions uh, in certain you know exam systems and so on there's, there's there's such a focus on only having certain people achieve certain grades there's focus on statistics bell curves and all these normative approaches rather than it being criterion based and so what if everybody gets an a grade as long as they deserve it then they should get it you know what's the what's the what's the problem with that? But we sacrilegious to the SQA a comment like that, Lee. <laughs> well, but you know, if, if people genuinely deserve to get an A and have met the criteria for an A, why should they not get it? Yes. You know, as long as they demonstrate that, they should get it. Um, and I appreciate you know at the moment if everybody gets an A, then it's, it seems all oh, the exams too easy. There's a problem. You know, we need to put up the pass mark and so on. But that's going back to this normative approach. Um, and that's rooted in culture, you know, history and so on. And I appreciate, you know, there's lots of reasons why we need to be able to distinguish between different people, you know, university admission, employers, jobs, you know, and, and so on. But, you know, it, I suppose it's about taking a step back and thinking about a, a different approach that's in the best interest of the learner. And I think, you know, that you hit the nail on the head there when you, you spoke about the, the, the focus should be on the outcome. Um, and, and regardless really of how the student gets there. And, and you know, they, they putting in essays and other hoops and so on, or other things that people need to pass, that's based on our assumption, you know, the, the teacher's assumption or, or the awarding body's assumption of what they think is fair. But that in itself is based on assumptions. And quite often, you know, they could be challenged, they could be false, 
bias, unconscious biases, and so on. This is removing all of that. Absolutely, it's 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 fascinating. I'm really looking forward to seeing. Um, how it goes, obviously, kind of hearing from you over the next, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah I'm sure. Um, so just, I suppose, as we, just to, to finish up, if there are people listening to this who are interested in either finding out more about it or maybe applying to yeah. join the course, what should they do? Yeah. They just get in touch with me directly, you know, I'm active on Twitter, you're more than welcome to share my email address, but I'm, I'm genuinely interested in having conversations with, with anybody with an interest in education about authentic assessment and this social justice approach to assessment and um, because there's there's lots and lots of things we could do in, in Scottish education that would that you know could really make a difference if we take on board some of these principles and uh, and so on so I'm, I'm more than happy to have a conversation with anybody who's who's interested absolutely I like that idea social justice approach to assessment I can see that being something that's, that we that we pick up again on the show at some point in the future that's that and that's exactly what this is it's a, it's it's about taking away the fact that people um, or, or it's, it's about acknowledging that people come from different starting points and that people can evidence learning in different ways. So I suppose my final take point, point to take away is fairness doesn't mean sameness, but at the moment that's, that's the system we're in, I think. Brilliant. And obviously it's just really interesting to me that it's like it's the college sector that maybe allows people a window into that because they can directly that, that, that this argument that we make. I've got that in my book, this thing about, you know, just because the, the everyone sits the same exam paper doesn't mean the experience is the same. But maybe it's easier Absolutely. to understand in terms of colleges when you say as somebody teaching humanities and somebody who's a spark or somebody who's teaching mechanics, yeah. and then people can go, Well, oh, they're coming from quite different backgrounds. You know, maybe they assess. And all of a sudden, it does open up this maybe understanding that assessment needs that, yeah. that reappraisal that you're talking about. Absolutely, Absolutely fascinately. Thank you very much yeah. for that. Yeah. No, you're more than welcome. Anytime, it's been great to, to share my thoughts and views. And as I say, I'm happy to, to talk to anybody who wants to come and have a chat with me. Draken. Yeah. Thank you very much uh, to Dr. Lee Kitts. Thank you very much. So, Thanks again to Lee. And as I said before, I think the issues that he's wrestling with are profoundly relevant to the situation in which we find ourselves across the, the broader education system, particularly with schools. You know, what's, things he's talking about, they are taking a step back, challenging the norm, challenging assumptions, doing things differently, prioritising students rather than systems and processes, rewarding people for the work they've done instead of dishing out grades on the basis of this number must fail, only that number can have an A. You know, he's saying if, if everyone has done the work, if everybody has met the standard, then what's the problem? And it is fundamentally, I suppose, down to that difference between uh, norm reference assessment, which says only certain numbers can get certain grades, and criterion reference, which says, well, this is what we need you to do. And if you can do it, then you will be rewarded for that. And the conversation that he's having, it may seem at first, certainly maybe through the start of the interview there, um, might maybe seem at first as if it's only about his particular setting, you know, qualifications for teaching in colleges, but it definitely, definitely isn't. He's asking questions, you know, what are we really trying to assess? How do we go about doing that in an effective way? How do we go about doing that in a just way? What's the most appropriate, what's the most authentic approach in each context to do the individual job that we're trying to do? And that is exactly the conversation we should be having about schools and in particular end of school assessment and certification and it is also exactly the conversation that the high hygienes are 
absolutely terrified of. That specifically is the conversation that they want shut down. But if unis and colleges can do this kind of thing, and they do, and we do, I, I teach in a college, and some of the things that he's talking about there, the criterion reference assessment, I think a lot of people would be perhaps quite shocked <laughs> by the fact that the assumptions around assessment that dominate everything about secondary schools simply do not exist at other levels. And if so, if unis and colleges can do it, why not schools? It can't be because teachers are less professional than lecturers or less committed to their students. If anything, it's going to be the opposite. Really, a lot of the time, the answer just comes down to logistics. There's too many schools. There's too many pupils. It'd be too hard. It would cost too much. It'd be too much change. It would upset too many people. All of which means, actually, it's just a question of commitment. It's a question of trust, of priorities, of investment. It's a question of whether or not education really is our top priority or not. That's what this comes down to. And that's why I think that having these kinds of conversations, which are difficult and which are challenging and which you know are on the list of things, that conversations that maybe Scotland isn't really ready for, but really needs to confront. And if there's ever going to be a time for it to happen. It really, really, really desperately so needs to be now. And if we're ever going to wrest a bit of control away from the people who would have us just keep things the same because it suits, you know, powerful groups, now really has to be the time. Now, very quickly, I want to direct your attention to something that came up on Twitter literally, like literally as I was recording this podcast. And it was a thread by someone called Kenny Boyle, an actor and writer whose debut novel's coming out in May. Like the story from Uganda, I'll link to the thread that he posted on Twitter in the description of the podcast so you can have a look yourself. But to quickly summarise, he talks about his time at primary school. Him and his friends, the ones always in trouble, always sent to the head teacher's office, being bullied, looking for ways to escape that, climbing over the fence to go and hang out in the woods instead and stuff like that. Talks about writing stories and his daughter and his teacher giving him a bit of trouble for it. I should I mean this is stress. This is all like you know late eighties, early nineties, kind of when I was at school, and none of it sounds surprising. He talks about the end of a school year and being quote friendless and alone in my class with no idea who'd even be our teacher when we came back the next term. And then over the summer, he goes away and he writes this story. The nine year old works really hard, is really proud of it, and when school comes back, he decides to show it to his teacher. He's got this new teacher, and her name is Mrs. McLennan, and she sends him to the head teacher. But this time she does it with a note saying, this is great work and this boy deserves recognition. And one of the things he's tweeted as part of the thread is that she knew the head teacher had met him all these times for bad reasons. And she wanted him to go and meet that head teacher for a good reason. And then he says, she was the first teacher I ever had that made me feel like writing wasn't wasting my time. And at the end of P7, he made a promise that he'd send a copy of his first book to her when it was published. And that was 26 years ago, and now the book exists. And Kenny's desperate to get in touch with her so that he can fulfill that promise. Now, I think, you know, I, I tweeted this, and almost immediately there were some responses and somebody saying, I think I know who that is. It may well be the power of Twitter has already solved this and, and addressed this for us, which would be incredible. But e even if that's the case, I really wanted to mention it because I love stuff like this. Teachers have huge impacts, good and bad, to be fair, on young people. 
so many of us as adults have stories about that teacher we remember. The one who believed in us, the one who helped us when they felt like nobody else would, the one that, you know, would let us sit in their class, the one who would talk to us like a human, all that kind of stuff. For those of us who are or have been teachers, if you've ever been told you've had anything like that sort of impact on somebody, it's massive. One of my former students on Aaron um, is now an English teacher, and, uh, and she'd have thought nothing of this, but tweeted a few months ago now. I can't remember what it was I had tweeted or had out or something. Maybe it was in the book or something like that. And uh, she tweeted, you know, this guy's the reason I became a teacher. And I was just, like, just frozen by it because it's incredible to to think of that of that sort of impact and we spend so much time understandably rightly focusing on how difficult teaching is and how difficult it is made by the people who run the system and how hard it's been over the last couple of years for everybody but it's so important we don't lose sight of stories like kenny's and it's not the only one as i say there are thousands tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of these stories from all across the country. Some of you might, if you've never seen it, God, go and find the, the video of Ian Wright talking about his his old teacher. It just the impact's incredible. So I'm hoping um I'm hoping to have Kenny on the podcast sometime soon, actually, because I'd love to get into this with him even further. But this is actually something I've been toying with for a while. Um I've been asked a few times by a publisher and other people, you know, after class rules, after a bit like that. And thank you to everybody who's bought a copy and read it and been so kind about it. But after that, where do you go next? What else can you do? And something I've been thinking about for a new book that sort of explores the real impact of education is this. These stories of the way in which people's lives have just been completely changed, trajectories changed by what happens in Scottish schools. So if any listeners have got stories like this they want to share with me, please, please do. You can tweet me, you can email me. Um, if you'd be up for talking a little bit about it, let me know, because one of the things I can actually do with this podcast, I haven't tried it out yet, but we can give it a go. Um, I can actually set it up so that you can sort of send in, I suppose, like voice messages. Um, a bit like leaving a message in an answering machine, but instead but I can use it on the podcast after that if anybody has a story to tell, but maybe doesn't you know want to come on and be a full half hour, 40 minute guest. It's no problem at all. Can do it anonymously if they want i don't mind and also to follow on from kenny's story can i ask a wee favor if anyone out there is in touch with ms pandolfi who was my primary one teacher i'd love to hear from you in particular ms pandolfi who i still i mean i remember very little from primary school um not really sure why it's not as if i didn't enjoy it or anything but she was my primary one teacher and i remember a lot many of the memories i have of primary school or of her somehow. I remember watching her playing piano in P1 and she was the first person I'd ever seen. We used to, it's Catholic school, so we used to go and we'd sit in the corridor, they'd wheel out the piano and the piano would get played, we'd all sing the hymns, sitting cross-legged in the corridor. Uh, it's just ridiculous. But we'd sit and we'd be singing the hymns and I've got this really clear memory of looking up and realising that what she was doing, she was sitting, she was playing the piano and she turned around to look at me as she was playing and I just thought it was magical. She also, I... But similar to Kenny, I wrote a story, massively derivative story about a superhero who um, jumped over buildings and stuff like that when I was in primary one. Ms. Pandolfi helped me turn it into this like 
book that I remember had gold paper for the covers, stuff like that. I'd love to speak to her again I'd, I'd, um, and say thank you, I suppose. And for the rest of you who've got these stories, you know, yeah, maybe tell me about it. But you know what? See if you're able to tell your own teacher about it. See if you're able to see these people that you think you should thank. See if you're able to do it. Trust me, as somebody who has been on the other side of that, who's been thanked by people that, you know, we just in this to do our jobs, and but you get attached, and obviously you, you want to make sure you do the best for everybody, but you don't expect thanks afterwards or anything, you know? that's not It's not a transactional thing, but when it does happen, when, when people come to you later on, maybe years later, and thank you for something, or, or tell you about the difference that you made, it's huge, and right now especially, when everything's so difficult for teachers, if there is somebody that you could speak to, that you could say thank you for what you did for me, I absolutely guarantee you it would make a massive, massive difference to them. I guarantee you, you'll brighten their day. You might do an awful lot more. So that's us for this week. Now, one thing I know I'd said before, I'm going to go back to questions of ethics around things like supported study and, and kind of broader issues, and I am, but I think that's actually a bigger issue than could be done justice in that sort of context. I think it needs an episode all on its own, this question of ethics and education and ethics in the system and what if some of the things that we take for granted that we see as either normal or as actively good, like supportive study, what if in actual fact these are unethical policies that we should be abandoning? So I'm working on that just now. That'll be coming um, a little bit, a little bit down the line. As always, Thank you very, very much for joining me on the Scottish Education Show. Please uh, follow the Twitter account, subscribe to the podcast, share it with people on your social media platforms, tell friends and colleagues about it, you know, go to the staff room, um, whatever. Anything you can do to support it, to to help, um, to help share it and help spread it is, as always, hugely appreciated. And of course, if you're enjoying the show, if you think it's a good idea, if you can afford it, particularly you can afford it, then you can support it by chipping in a few quid a month to the, the Patreon page, which just helps to, to keep the podcast going, really recover some of the costs of it, and ideally um, will allow me to dedicate a bit more of my time both to the podcast and to uh, further investigations into Scottish education. So thank you very much once again for joining me this week. Thank you to my guest, Lee Coots, and hopefully you've got a bit of you know something to go away and think about now whether it's from lee from uganda for example or whether it's uh, kenny's story about the huge impact of his primary seven teacher but thank you for joining me and i'll catch you all later on <laughs>